I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. What have we done this week? Finishing Christmas shopping. Finishing Christmas shopping. We're recording this a day late. It should have gone out today, but we're recording this on the Sunday because, quite frankly, life has gone mad again. <laughs> it really has. We've been doing lots of Christmas shopping and Christmas prep stuff. And then Christmas is now cancelled, obviously. Yeah, that happened yesterday. Thanks, that, Boris. Yeah, thanks for that. Lots of notice, yep. as usual. No one could have predicted. <laughs> <laughs> no one could have predicted that this could happen. Yeah, so we were supposed to be seeing your parents, weren't we, Christmas day yeah and your sister as well at some point yeah and then flying down to Essex drive, we went to drive down to Essex drive to down see to Essex family. to see my kids my mum possibly my best friend who we haven't seen all year and then back up here and now we can't now we're, we're staying home Brilliant. tier four for most of Essex yeah tier four for most of Essex which is the new tier which is basically they can't do anything although super drug and pound land is open apparently I wasn't aware of that. Essential services. I couldn't understand Superdrug, but Poundland, less, um, less so. <laughs> I've given up questioning it. Yeah. We also went to see Nico, didn't we? Nico the dog. We did. Who was lovely, bless him, um, but not for us. No, not for us. So there's no doggy in our life. There's no doggy in our life. Still two cats, and they're both in, so we might hear from them in a minute. <laughs> we might do. Um, especially as I think that Merlin's come in about 10 minutes ago and he looked at his food bowl which was you could see the bottom of the food bowl um, and he looked at me with disdain and I didn't fill it out for him if so. it's not mounded high then <laughs> there's no food there yeah apparently it's because when cats eat if they feel their whiskers against the side of the bowl it, it stops them from eating I don't believe that for a minute. I think he's just an arsehole. <laughs> Although it's like Tom and Jerry in our house at the moment I would say because we've discovered that a mouse has moved into the bathroom cupboard. Did we mention this last week? I don't think we did, no. No, I can't remember now. My brain's no, so we had, we had a big, big bag of birdseed. Well, that's a lot of bees. In the garage that Elaine ordered. Elaine has it. Would you like to tell them? <laughs> I ordered it by mistake. I am notorious in my family for not measuring stuff accurately. Um, and I saw the birdseed that I wanted and it looked to me like quite a small package. And I didn't bother looking at the weight or any details of it. So I ordered it thinking it was like a size of a bag of flour, maybe, you know, like a household bag of flour. Yep. And it came, uh, no joke, it was a fucking sack of birdseed. <laughs> and even worse is it arrived. My poor dad could barely lift it to get it in the house for me when it arrived. Um, and then the birds don't like it. Yeah, we filled it out, the birds didn't eat it at all. So we literally had this massive industrial bag of birdseed. Mm -hmm. In the garage. And then I went into the garage to do a bit of a tidy up and discovered that mice had made their way into the bag of birdseed and had obviously been feasting, like proper chowing down on this birdseed. The mice had far more of it than the birds did. They did. Um, so I threw the birdseed away, because like, for God's sake, the birds aren't eating it and I don't really want mice living in my garage. And now the mice have moved into the bathroom cupboard by means of pipeworks, so the cats now just sit there, trained. <laughs> <laughs> so the cats have always stayed in the house on they overnight. Yes. And they normally try and creep into one of the bedrooms. So if one of the kids leaves their bedroom door open, they sneak in there and hide under the bed. Yeah. And if all the doors are shut, then they come downstairs and they sleep in either the office or the, the front room. Mm. Um, but no, for the past week or so, they have they have been inside, right on top of the cupboard door inside the uh, the bathroom, or just outside the bathroom. So when it's pitch black in the middle of the night, you go for a wee, you step on one of the cats. Because they're black. 
Yeah. <laughs> so they blend in with the night. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably been all week, hasn't it? Yep. I think. Yes. Got the and excitement of a Morrison's food delivery coming later. <laughs> we have. Be still <laughs> my beating heart. <laughs> I'm panicking because I haven't taken the money off the card and they're due in an hour, which tells me they're probably not coming. Go and on. my phone's off because we're recording on the phone, so it's on flight mode. <sighs> Panic stations. No food. It's fascinating, isn't it? Not now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most excitement in the world. <laughs> That's all about this week. We have got a few five-star reviews this week, so thank you, everyone. The first is from M. McCauley, who says, Great podcast, love it. Thank you, McCauley. We love you too. Next up is Claire Lett, who says, Thank you. Great podcast with some amusing quips. Makes me smile. And I would like to think that if we make you smile as we're detailing true crime, then we must be doing something right, because that is exactly what we set out to achieve when we started the podcast. Yes, light-hearted look at horrible crime. Yeah. <laughs> Murder with a side of laughter. But always with respect. Always with respect. I don't know why I laugh saying that. Yeah, we do try and be respectful, but, you know, not about the uh, the killers. No. 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 MZC underscore 0831 says, New favourite. Love the banter between the hosts. Well, research material, and of course the gorgeous UK accents make it all the more fab. Keep up the great work. Listening from the US. Uh, we pronounce the Z in your username Z just for you. Yeah. Thank you very much for your review. That's Thank lovely. You. And lastly, we have Sublime True Fan. Great name, by the way. They say, we enjoy listening to you on half speed. That really sends us to sleep. I'm going to take that as a massive compliment because I like listening to podcasts in bed. I say we both listen to podcasts as we fall asleep, don't we? We do. So, uh, yeah, Sublime True Crime. You too can sleep with Dan and Elaine. I think we need to listen to ourselves on half speed to see what we sound like. <laughs> I can only imagine how horrible it sounds. Might make more sense, actually, after a couple of drinks. It might do. If you would like to leave us a review, and we would love it if you did, you can do so at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. This week, the case of the Black Panther. Ooh. Ooh. Now, I've titled it The Case of the Black Panther, though when I started researching it, it wasn't the Black Panther that I was trying to find out about. I was looking into details of the kidnapping of Leslie Whittle. The more I researched, the more information I unearthed. No. <laughs> Sounds like a daft thing to say, but there has been many a time that I have been researching something and have found nothing. I've got nowhere with it. Yeah, some cases there's just so scant information out there. Yeah. Can't fumble enough together to be able to make an episode and even this one to be fair it's there's loads of basic information but to get some of the true in-depth stuff it took some digging but to be honest i'm amazed that i didn't know more about this case already i can't recall hearing it on another podcast it must have been out there somewhere to be fair but it's certainly not one that has stuck in the memory and it's quite a fascinating case mm. so donald nielsen was born donald nappy on 1st of august 1936 he would go on to be known as the black panther Jerry Caulfield was a boyhood friend of Nielsen and would later describe the youngster as, quote, small, wiry, energetic and quite fit. He seemed to enjoy playing at soldiers, fighting, wrestling, anything where he could show his physical prowess, end quote. Can you say small man syndrome? <laughs> Said to have had an unhappy childhood, Nielsen's 33-year-old mother died from breast cancer when he was just 10 years old. A year later, in 1948, he was caught shop-breaking. And I assume that's breaking into a shop rather than shoplifting? Must be. Yep. However, given his young age and the recent trauma he'd suffered in losing his mum, the police merely gave him a caution and a stern telling off. It seemed to work, at least in the short term, 
as there's very little in the way of evidence to say he misbehaved any more as a kid. In fact, all signs point to things going well for him. Donald went on to serve in the army as a national serviceman in the King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry. This was a time of national service, so although Nielsen didn't have a choice about whether to join the army or not, reports seem to suggest that he loved military life. It saw him serve in Kenya, Aden and Cyprus. His term in the army was short though. When he was just 18, he married 20-year-old Irene Tate and she persuaded him to leave the army for civilian life in a terraced house on Grangefield Avenue in Thornaby, Bradford. He found work by jobbing as a builder. A few years later, Irene gave birth to their daughter, Catherine, in 1960. And in 1964, four years after his daughter's birth, Donald changed the family surname from Nappy to Nielsen, saying that he didn't want his daughter to suffer the bullying and abuse that he had endured, both at school and in the army, because of his surname. And for our American listeners, Nappy is the British word for diaper. There are a couple of theories as to where the new surname came from. One is that Donald bought a taxi business from a man named Nielsen and decided to adopt that name as his own family surname. Another theory, which was put forward by Lena Fernley, who was a lodger that stayed with the Nielsen family in the early 1960s, is that the name had been taken from an ice cream van where the new parents often bought ice cream for their daughter. Fernley revealed it in an interview with the BBC that he told her simply, I like that name. Imagine if I've changed my surname on that basis. <laughs> amount of coffee I drink, I'd have to change it to Dan Costa. Dan Costa. Would you get free drinks for life then? If I did, I'd do it. Oh, I know you would. If I got free Costa for life, I'd have Costa tattooed across my forehead. And it's a big enough forehead. I mean, it'd be seen for miles. <laughs> <laughs> there is enough space, enough real estate there. <laughs> but a surname wasn't the only thing that Nielsen stole. By 1965, with a one-year-old daughter and a wife to care for, and having tried and failed at building a career as a carpenter, taxi driver and a security guard, Nielsen decided to turn to a life of crime. It's a pity, really, I thought at this point, that he didn't stay in the army. Yeah. It seemed to suit him. He seemed to like discipline and order, didn't he? Yeah. Bloody women coming along. Ruining people's lives. (laughs) Changing men's way of life. (laughs) Instead, he was quickly becoming a career criminal. And do you know what? That, in my mind, puts pay to the theory that he bought that taxi firm. Yes. If he'd invested in that, you wouldn't chuck it away, surely, straight away for... No, I can well believe he was a taxi driver, maybe, but... Mm. Nielsen committed more than 400 house burglaries successfully without being caught. So adept was Nielsen that he quickly totted up a couple of nicknames from the police. The Phantom and Handy Andy. Handy Andy. (laughs) Makes me think of uh, that bloke from Big Brother. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. See, I think of some, some cartoon on Disney Channel the kids used to watch, which I'm sure, I think it was Handy Manny. Long time ago. <laughs> but he wasn't daft. In an effort to stay one step ahead of the police, he knew that he had to change how he operated on a regular basis. And so he changed his routine often. For example, he would make a habit of stealing a radio from each house and then disposing of it nearby. Once he had established that pattern of behaviour, he would then switch to doing something different. But having to change his techniques to keep police off his back wasn't the only thing that Nielsen learnt. He also learnt that breaking into houses was not as fruitful as he hoped it would be. Following a burglary at a house in Chester, where he came away with guns and ammunition, Nielsen saw the perfect opportunity to step up a gear. Brandishing his newly acquired weapons, he turned to robbing small post offices. Do we need to describe what post offices are for Americans? Probably worthwhile, yes. 
How would you describe a post office? <laughs> so a post office is literally a place where you go and you get stuff for the post. So you, you post your letters, you get you can act like a bank because they, they do so much more yes that they they are used like a bank for a lot of people and certainly back in that era so in like in the 70s and 80s um they were used by a lot of people for banking um and it's also the place where most pensioners get their pension paid in <laughs> my mum used to work in a post office actually um, and she used to say about all of the old pensioners used to queue up i think it was a thursday morning that yep. they'd be queuing outside the pension waiting to get the pension and she'd be like what do they have to do all day that they, they are so desperate to queue up most time? I think a good description might be it's like the equivalent of a mum and pop store in America. So the post office is a big company, but they had sub-post offices which were independently run. Yes. Well, it's almost like a franchise, isn't it, that you bought yeah. into? So you, you owned that part you know, of the post office, but obviously you're managed from above. Mm. Um, but, they, but they did actually used to have quite a lot of cash on the premises. Yeah, because they were run in, similar to a bank. They yes. did. In fact, in the three-year period between 1971 and 1974, Nielsen managed 18 robberies, which is an average of one every two months. Bloody hell. But the more he did, the more violent he became in an effort to protect himself against those who tried to defend their property. And as a side note, I've worked in banks. The rule of just about any firm these days is that if someone wants to rob the place, let them. Firms would rather their staff stayed safe than risking life and limb to save money from being stolen, money which, in all likelihood, is insured anyway. I doubt that was the case 50 years ago, though, and a lot of smaller post offices were owned and run by families rather than being part of a big chain. You can possibly understand why some victims chose to put up a fight. Yes, definitely. If it was the owners, definitely. Yeah. In February 1972, Nielsen broke into a sub-post office which was situated in a private home in Rochdale Road in Haywood, Lancashire. Now that made me really confused because I've never heard of a post office being within a private home. Really? Really. I see. When I think of the old quaint sub-post offices, like the village post offices, I always think that they're linked to accommodation uh, in much the way that uh, traditional English pubs are. Um, It does seem that all of these, where he attacked people, they were linked to private homes. It's a bit more isolated as well. Yeah. The postmaster, Leslie Richardson, and his wife, woke to find a hooded man in their bedroom. Richardson instinctively leapt out of bed to try and tackle the intruder while his wife phoned the police. In the middle of the struggle, Nielsen showed Richardson his sawn-off shotgun. And that's an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? To show him the gun? It's almost like there was no struggle. I think this is probably before he started actually wanting to shoot them, so it's kind of like the threat. He was hoping that the threat of the gun would be enough. So he's kind of, you know... Okay. Look at my gun! (laughs) Look at my gun! Uh, The armed robber snapped it in a fake West Indian accent, which I'm not going to recreate here. Thank God. (laughs) This is loaded. But Richardson could see that the gun was pointing towards the ceiling and there was no danger of anyone being shot. We'll find out if it's loaded was Richardson's brave or perhaps foolhardy response as he managed to reach for and pull the trigger himself. The resulting holes in the ceiling proved the gun had indeed been armed and as the fight continued, Richardson managed to pull off Nielsen's black hood and a frightened couple got a good look at the man robbing them. In return, Nielsen stomped heavily onto Richardson's feet, breaking several toes as he did so, before then kneeing in the groin. As Richardson collapsed on the floor, Nielsen made his escape, empty-handed. Bloody brave of Richardson, wasn't it? Yeah. I do think there's a real fight-or-flight instinct, isn't there? Yes. When the police arrived, Richardson gave them a description of the masked intruder. 
a description which apparently turned out to be inaccurate in many respects. I don't think he'd be that focused on what you were looking at there, would you, if you were fighting for your life, potentially? No, but you would hope two of them together could get some kind of description. Mind you, this is 50 years ago. I think these days we're trained to know, actually, if we can get a good description of someone. Yes, there's a better chance of catching them. Yeah. Several other photo fits of Nielsen also proved to be unhelpful, although one, made by sub-postmistress Margaret Grayland, who was the victim of a different robbery, was extremely accurate. But it was not accurate enough for the police to catch Nielsen, though. And in the two years following the Richardson robbery, while police were searching for the mystery man who was holding up post officers, Nielsen had moved on. In 1974, he committed his first three murders. His first was in February at a sub-post office in Harrogate, North Yorkshire. Confronted by Donald Scapper during the robbery, Nielsen shot him dead. There's so little in the way of information about that robbery. Yes. It really is a case of he robbed this place, he shot the man, he died, he then went on. I suppose because he wasn't caught at the time, that they had nothing to report, did they? In the following months, police interviewed 30,000 people to try and find Donald's killer. Seven months later, on the 6th of September 1974, Nielsen broke into the sub-post office at Higher Baxenden near Accrington. His robbery attempt woke Derek Astin, who had been asleep with his wife and children. Attempting to grapple the gun from the intruder, Astin was shot and badly injured by Nielsen and died shortly after arriving at hospital. The post office offered a £5,000 reward for the capture of Derek's killer. Back in the early 70s, £5,000 was a lot of money. It really was. Two months after that, in the evening of the 11th of November 1974, Nielsen knocked on the back door of another sub-post office in Langley in the West Midlands. Sidney Grayland and his wife Margaret were in the middle of a stop take at the time. Margaret continued her work as Sidney made his way to the back to answer the door. Once again, armed with a shotgun but this time also carrying a bottle of ammonia, Nielsen forced his way inside and a struggle ensued. Nielsen squirted the ammonia at Sydney, but the attempt failed and he only succeeded in squirting it over his own hooded face. <laughs> How the hell would he be that cocked up? God knows. In the ensuing struggle between the two men, Nielsen shot Sidney Grayland in the stomach. And with his victim laid out on the floor, Nielsen ripped his ammonia-soaked mask off. Seconds later, Margaret came into the room, having been alerted by the sounds of the struggle. Fearing that she may be able to identify him, Nielsen beat Margaret savagely fracturing her skull in three places. Leaving her for dead, he escaped the scene with £800 of cash and postal orders. Do we need to explain what postal orders are? Probably. Okay. I don't know what postal orders are. <laughs> so <laughs> It's actually, kind of like a cheque. It's, it's basically cash, isn't it? It's, it's kind of, yeah. They act as cash. So it's, it's basically a, well, it's a form that is filled out that says that it's worth the same value as cash and you present it to a bank or a post office and they give you cash in exchange for it when i was younger and my mum and dad divorced and my dad didn't see me he used to send me pocket money and it used to be a postal order and it was only about 20 years later that i thought about it i thought why didn't he just send five pound note yes which is what you do these days there you go. the robbery and the murder were only discovered by chance two policemen doing a routine walk around the area close to 11 p.m noticed that the lights were still on at the post office an odd thing at that time of night investigating further they found Sidney's body, as well as Margaret's. The only real clues that police could get from the robbery was Margaret's description of Nielsen, as well as identical bullets to the ones used at the previous murders. 
After this murder, the post office increased the reward to £25,000. And if we thought £5,000 was a lot, £25,000 in 1974, equivalent to a quarter of a million today. It's about 10 times the amount. It's a huge amount. It's a huge amount. Um, I did try and work out the area that Nielsen was working because I thought he might have like a triangle kind of patch. Based on the three murders he committed, he doesn't seem to have stuck to a small area. There was 140 miles between Harrogate and Langley, for example. And although that's probably not very far to American listeners, in the UK, it is a big size patch. It is. We're all very local, aren't we, in the UK, generally, that we tend to stick to our own little areas. Yeah. And I generally think of America having big super highways that go from one place to another or just one long road. Mm. Don't get that in the UK. It's just all back roads and villages and stuff like that. Yes. The Baxenden murder resulted in Nielsen being called the Black Panther. As during an interview with local television reporter, Astin's wife Marion described her husband's killer as so quick he was like a panther. Alluding to the killer's dark clothing, the enterprising reporter ended his piece by asking, where is this Black Panther? And the nickname stuck. Do you know what? Just once I would like to hear the media come up with a name that isn't all enigmatic. And, you know, can you imagine if he ended his piece by saying, where is this elusive piece of shit? Yes. Where is this small dicked shit given? (laughs) If only they could say that. (laughs) But they can't. <clears throat> the hunt for the small dick shit given continues tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Even just the, you know, the prat, the, yeah. the black clothed prat. Yes. Yes. The police had linked two of the murders with the attack on Leslie Richardson, but they were still struggling to get a consistent description of the attacker. By the start of 1975, Nilsson was once again ready to change his MO. I guess the three murders in the previous year was enough for him to change his mind about what he was doing. Reformed character? <laughs> Not quite. Sometime in 1972, Nielsen had read about George Whittle, a noted coach transport business owner who had died and left his fortune to his girlfriend, Dorothy, and their two children, Ronald and Leslie. In a bid to avoid estate taxes, George Whittle had given three houses plus £70,000 in cash to Dorothy, and on top of this, he'd given 107000 to his son Ronald and £82,000 to his daughter Leslie before... Uh- Why? Why less for the daughter, you prick? (laughs) Before he passed away in 1970, age 65. Yeah, well, yes. So, again, each of those, 10 times the value. So the equivalent of, what's that, two and a half million today? If it makes any difference, Dorothy got less than them both? No. No? Okay. If it makes any difference, Leslie was only 17, Ronald was 31? Doesn't matter. If it makes any difference, he probably saved tax somewhere? Don't care. Okay. (laughs) If you've got children, you should be splitting <clears throat> stuff equally. Uh, yeah, well, yes, I agree. But was it a gift to the children or was it just a tax break? Yeah. I mean, you, you're still right. It should still be split equally. I can't imagine it's different. The, I wouldn't have thought so. George had left nothing to his estranged wife, Selina Whittle, who began legal proceedings in May 1972 to get what she felt was her share from her husband's estate. The Daily Express ran a story about the legal battle a story that Nielsen had read about with interest. In the three years following his discovery of this family dispute, Nielsen plotted on how he could get his hands on some of the money left in the will, figuring that the family could easily afford to lose £50,000. And I wonder how you work that out. I mean, how much a rich family can afford to lose? Where's the cut-off point? Oh, they can afford to lose 50000 Well, why not 60000 Why not 55000 Oh, it's too much. Yeah, no, well, 50,000. Taking 50, the test 55,000. <laughs> <laughs> but 51,000, no, no. no. We've got it around 50, like round numbers. 
It's, uh, it's like there's a, a cut-off point. Yeah, it is bizarre. It's like you just picked it and gone, hmm, nice round number, I'll go for that. Minds of madmen. In the early hours of the 14th of January 1975, Nielsen made his way to the Whittle family home in highly Shropshire. Cutting the phone lines outside the property, possibly in the false belief it was a burglar alarm, and not a burglar arm like I've written, <laughs> Nielsen broke into the property through the garage. His plan was to kidnap either George Whittle's widow, Dorothy, or his son, Ronald. He entered one of the bedrooms expecting to find one of his intended victims. Instead, he had stumbled into the bedroom of Leslie Whittle, the 17-year-old daughter of George Whittle, who was sound asleep. Waking the terrified teenager, he gagged her and forced her outside and into the back of his green Morris car. Wearing only her dressing gown and slippers, Leslie was tied up and laid down by Nielsen on the back seat. He then drove her to Bathpool Park in Kidsgrove, Staffordshire, 55 miles away. Poor girl must have been absolutely fucking terrified. It's been horrible, mustn't it? After the 90-minute drive, Nielsen pulled Leslie out of the car and forced her down into a drainage shaft of a nearby reservoir. He then removed her dressing gown, leaving her naked in the middle of bloody January, and placed a hood over her head. He finished by tethering her to the side of the shaft using a wire noose. He then left the petrified teenager alone with a mattress and a sleeping bag. The next morning, Dorothy decided to check in on her daughter, who hadn't gotten up for breakfast. Entering the teenager's bedroom, she first noticed that her daughter's clothes for the day were untouched. She then saw a strip of dino tape with a message on it. Do we know what dino tape is? Is it like your dino tape? It is. That probably won't help the listeners, but yes, it is. <laughs> so it's basically a label maker. But So when you and I were younger, so in the 70s, it was basically a long red-ish strip of plastic that was sticky. And you could turn the dial and you could imprint like a typewriter the uh, letters. So you just go through it all and type out. God, that's long-winded. Yeah. Some reports say that it was one and a half feet long. Others say it was closer to six foot. So he's taken a lot of time then if that's each each individual letter. Do you know what? I mean, there's yeah, it's not fucking around. You couldn't exactly type that up on Microsoft Word at the time. No. Whatever the length, it was a ransom note demanding £50,000, along with instructions to wait for a telephone call at a phone box at the Swan Shopping Centre in Kidderminster that evening. There was also a warning not to involve the police. Now, this is really... This is badly written English, is probably the way to say it. But I guess as he's doing it, and it's taken him about an hour to type the bloody thing, it read, quote, No police. £50,000 ransom to be ready to deliver. Wait for telephone call at Swan Shopping Centre. Telephone box 6pm to 1pm. If no call, return following evening. When you answer, give name only and listen. You must follow instructions without argument from time you answer. You are on a time limit. If police or tricks, death. Swan Shopping Centre, Kidderminster. Deliver £50,000 in a white van. £50,000 in all old notes. £25,000 in £1 notes and £25,000 in £5. There will be no exchange. Only after £50,000 has been cleared will victim be released. End quote. There's no punctuation in that at all. Nope. Now, if you're going to kidnap someone, try and get your grammar right. Do you know what I mean? Well, I have to say as well, £25,000 in £1 notes. That's going to be some bloody wadge of money. It's going to be heavy. Yes. Dorothy ran to the phone to call Leslie's brother Donald. 
Finding the line dead, she rushed to her car, still dressed in only her dressing gown, and drove to the home that Ronald shared with his wife Gaynor. Now, this is what I was going to put here, and I didn't actually write it down. All the talk is of how Nilsson plans and prepares everything, and he has his military thinking. Mm. But he didn't realise that one of his intended kidnapping victims didn't live at the house. Yes. Seems odd. Yeah, it was strange. The couple drove back with Dorothy to the Whittle family home. It was only then they discovered a second copy of the ransom note inside a box of Turkish Delight in the lounge. I'll tell you this now, if anyone ever left a ransom note in a box of Turkish Delight near me, I'd never find it. Horrible stuff. I'm the same. It would remain <laughs> unopened on the side. <laughs> <laughs> we would gift it to someone at Christmas and they'd open it and there'd be a ransom note in there. <laughs> They then noticed that Leslie's dressing gown and slippers were also missing. Ronald immediately phoned the police, stressing to officers that Nielsen should not be made aware that he had called. At the height of the investigation, over 250 officers were involved in trying to solve the case, a case which seems to suffer a series of errors and misunderstandings which ultimately led to the death of the teenager. Spoiler alert. And that... Is the end of part one. Join us next week for part two. Or you can reach us via our Facebook page. Just search for Sublime True Crime. If you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one. Of course, as it helps us to reach more people. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll see you again next week for part two. Until next time, goodbye. Have a lovely Christmas. Goodbye. Always have to get in there with a better comment. Well, it is Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) (laughs) That is staying in. (laughs)